Welcome to the first official session of our conference. Uh, well, I suppose I should say that our worship service was already a substitute contribution and foundation for our conference. We're delighted that you're here. Uh, we think we're going to have a very, very interesting experience together. I would like, I think I should start by saying just a few things about the center of the work that uh, led to this conference. I, I wish we had time actually to go around and ask each one of you, how did you hear about this conference? Uh, because we we've made it public on the website and through the various mailing lists that we have. And we're fascinated by the wonderful echo the response and the, the new faces that come. It's very encouraging. This center <clears throat> is the outcome of student initiative. Uh, about four, almost five years ago, a group of students worked, working with some colleagues in the faculty, became very, very engaged in the question of church planting. And particularly with the issue of churches taking the, the, the difficult challenges of the North American mission field seriously. And out of this interest in the, in the, in the class, Professor Bowen was involved with them from the very beginning, uh, a project, a, 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 an idea evolved, which was really conceived by the students, written up by the students, and taken to the seminary administration. Uh, and the, and the, the, the thrust of the entire proposal was that Princeton needs to be looking hard at the task of planting churches and becoming a mission, churches that are missionary churches in the difficult North American context. And our administration was responsive, amazingly responsive, and decided to make it possible for such a center to get started. And it was about that time, and I, I'm sure that Shane Berg can flesh this story out. He was involved from the, from the very beginning, together with Lisa Lawrence, uh, that somebody had the odd idea, well, Guder has just recently retired, so he obviously has nothing to do. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe we should ask him if he would be the kind of founding interim director. And uh, it, it sounded like an absolutely wonderful idea. And I, I said, yes, I'd be interested. Uh, and then I found out that the real reason this all worked out was that Sarah became available to be the administrator of the center. <laughs> and there is no greater delight than having an administrator and associate like Sarah. So we began uh, working within the seminary community, asking ourselves how could Princeton Seminary contribute to the formation of missional leadership formation of missional congregations in this very challenging context in which we find ourselves. Uh, to do that, we began to build networks. We didn't want to duplicate. We wanted to find out, is there anything specific about Princeton's story, uh, legacy, traditions, current realities that lends itself to uh, a, uh, a rethinking of, of missional vocation? Uh, we had convened uh, actually three different conversations, uh, and we developed a style of, of conversation where we, we learn from each other. We begin to get ideas. A consensus begins to gel. Uh, and that's what we're doing with this conference. The, the difference with this conference versus the earlier ones is that we've taken a very specific theme which has emerged out of the whole process. So in a sense, we're already in a, get, gathering the fruit of the earlier discussion by focusing this time on initial hermeneutics, and I hope by the time this evening's discussion has concluded, you'll all completely understand what we mean by initial hermeneutics, because that's our goal tonight, to explain our learning process and why we've started this language 
and what's actually happening under the rubric of uh, initial hermeneutics. Then tomorrow we're going to talk about how this works in congregations and in interaction with New Testament studies. Um, Let me ask my colleagues, should, they, should I add anything more by way of introduction? Oh, I, I did want to say we do have, if you haven't seen it yet, we have a, a detailed uh, history, a documentation of the evolution of this idea, and we're very happy to make it available to you online. If you just ask Sarah, send, us, send me the history paper. Uh, one of our concerns from the very beginning, partially because we're Princeton Seminary and we have a lot of projects going here, was to keep a very careful paper trail, mm -hmm. paper trail of what we were doing, and trying to understand how does this conversation, how do these initiatives relate to the the whole spectrum of what Princeton Seminary is all about, and and so we we've, we've done that, and I think we have a very already a very valuable archive. You'll find in your papers for this conference a bibliography, which uh, Deborah, where are you, Deborah? There you are. Deborah has put together with advice from several others as a resource of our center. Uh, and it's, it reflects titles that all of us, from one perspective or another, have found relevant for the question of forming and nurturing congregations that take their missional vocation seriously. Um, so let me get us into our theme. And we're, uh, our idea is we're going, to, we're going to converse. We're not giving lectures. What I've just done is the longest presentation you'll probably hear anybody make, uh, because we want uh, our our invited participants to lead to lead us in conversation, and we want that conversation to open up and include all of you. So we hope by the time we get around to the wine and fruit break for a while, that we will all have had a chance to engage this theme, and, and you will have a chance to bring in questions or observations uh, that will be helpful to all of us. The um, the discussion about the missional church, of course, can be tracked back to the publication of a book by that title. Uh, missional Church uh, was published in 1998, a, a project of the Gospel and Our Culture Network, which at the time was the continuation in North America of the discussion initiated by Leslie Newbegin in Great Britain back in the 70s uh, uh, on the whole question of how do churches in the so-called Christian West, when the West is no longer Christian, become missionary again. That was a complicated, very Germanic sentence <laughs> to explain uh, our roots. And out of that, that inquiry into the, the character of North American culture and the missionary challenges posed by this culture, we did a, a set up a research team that asked the question, and this is Newbegin's famous question, how do Western Christendom congregations become missionary congregations in a situation of radical secularization, which is what we are experiencing on all sides. The, the outcome of that project, which I, I can tell you about if you want to <laughs> have a second glass of wine, was, <laughs> was uh, the study, the book, which immediately caught on and rapidly expanded uh, into a, actually a global conversation even though we made very clear that our work was focusing on North America, and we made no claim to be speaking for or about any other cultural context. The term missional itself, as I've said in every class I've taught, immediately became a greatly abused cliché. 
<laughs> so that it's impossible to know what anybody means when he or she says missional. Mm -hmm. You have to get them to explain it. But the, the thrust of the conversation was helping the, the church, and particularly in congregations and local communities, to reclaim our original vocation, which goes back to the New Testament, you shall be my witnesses, which goes back to the understanding that you are Christ's letter to the world. Uh, as I often put it, the, the apostolic mission of the church means that every community exists to continue the apostolic mission. Uh, churches are not founded in the New Testament to provide their members churches. Churches are founded to continue the witness of the gospel for whom these people have been gathered. So, uh, as we pursued this discussion, and, and a great deal began to be written, that, that uh, bibliography is helpful in this regard, it began to become clear that one of the real issues that needed to be addressed was the role of scripture in the formation of witnessing communities. How do we engage God's word in terms of, of its actual purpose? And our claim was, and this can be debated by uh, our participants, our claim was that the, new, the, the apostolic mission was not merely saving souls. The apostolic mission was the formation of witnessing communities who were witnesses not only to their own salvation, but to God's intended salvation for all creation. So uh, we began to engage the question of biblical interpretation for missional formation. It's a very interesting observation that was made originally by, I think, by David Bosch, the great master of, of Western missiology, whose book is still the classic textbook in missiology. He, he has quite an interesting discussion of the fact that the Great Commission, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, is never, as far as we can determine, ever applied to the church between 400 and 1900 in the West. The Great Commission is never looked upon as a statement coming at the end of Matthew's Gospel which relates to the reality of every Christian community. It disappears in the same way that mission itself, as a theological theme, disappears from the theological curriculum of the West. And only in the late 20th century does it begin to reassert itself. So we are hampered, we're, we're handicapped by this lack of engagement of scripture as missionary or missional formation. I just say that because I think that helps focus the urgency of the question. Uh, we, following through on this, we began to then ask ourselves, what can we do about this question, how does scripture equip congregations to be faithful to their calling as witnesses by, by convening particularly New Testament scholars to talk about how that works in the New Testament. So we started a, 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 an affiliated group at the Society for Biblical Literature, which has met now for maybe 12 years or longer. We've, we've all been involved. It's generated uh, essays and conferences and in, uh, actually, in the meantime, its members have done a, a lot of writing. There are a number of books that come out. And so this thing called missional hermeneutics is beginning to be something. It's beginning to have substance. Where there's there's a, a, great, a growing conversation. 
coming from a lot of different directions. And so we think it's important for us to discuss it here and then to talk about its ramifications. To get into that, I'm going to start by asking anybody of the biblical scholars to help everybody understand what does this term hermeneutics actually mean. <laughs> we don't want this to be any technical jargon, so let's make it a usable term. Anybody? There's a, a book by Mortimer Adler, How to Read a Book, that uh, for many years was the hermeneutics textbook at the seminary where I went. Um, it, basically, hermeneutics is a fancy word for how do we understand the meaning of something that we read. Um, we all read from some place. We have come to a text with certain assumptions, what it's about, if it's a play, if it's a, a novel, if it's a work of history, if it's a mathematics textbook. Um, and so hermeneutics is the discipline of reflecting on what is involved in interacting with a text to understand its meaning, the author's meaning, its significance. Um, there are actually big debates about what we're doing and how we are even involved in creating meaning as we read texts. But um, that's sort of the, the larger category of how do we interpret something like scripture. And then I take it that missional is a in some ways a subtype of that or a particular angle on that question of how should we read the Bible. If I recall correctly, the, the root for hermeneutics is the interpreter, hermeneutic, is it her, interpreter, is that correct? Yeah, Hermes, the god, the, god of, the messenger of the gods. Yeah. The messenger of the gods, that's wonderful. Does anybody want to add to that understanding of hermeneutics? Yeah, I think, I think Ross uh, covered it beautifully, but uh, so just to, uh, to add, um, that we bring assumptions um, uh, and we bring our locations to, to any reading of any text that we do. Um, and so what hermeneutics um, um, requires us to do, and I think this is an act of Christian accountability, is to, is to be clear um, about what those assumptions um, uh, and ways of reading and methods and why, um, you, you bring those to the, uh, the table as a, as a reader and make them transparent. I would just add that for me, missional hermeneutics is a subcategory of theological interpretation of scripture in which when we engage scripture, we're engaging it for the purpose of the church. Um, it's not just a, a piece of literature that we can analyze, but it is actually um, God's word to us. And um, because of that, it deserves to be reflected upon and um, we deserve to think about the text in a very careful, critical way. So if people engaged in this work uh, get really involved in it and they begin disagreeing with each other, what are the kind of classical disputes that one has in the field of hermeneutics? Well, I teach a class okay. here on um, hermeneutics. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the things I do in that class is that we look at different ways of interpreting text. So the class covers um, um, feminist readings of text, theological readings of text, um, just various types of approaches you can take to the text. And so one of the things I do in the class, or I try to help my students see, is that these different ways of reading and interpreting these texts, they have value. Um, and so we can see different meanings from using these different types of hermeneutics, if you 
and that each of them may have strengths and weaknesses. And so it's important to kind of at least understand how these different methods work, even if you may not agree with the methods, but at least understand how they work. And when people are engaging in these different types of hermeneutics, you can see from what perspective they're coming from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any, any other disputes or, or tensions in, the, in, this, in this discipline? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, this is the great Protestant tension. Um, I mean, there are infinite numbers uh, of ways to, to read these scriptures. And, um, and so how in the community of faith do we make decisions about valid or invalid readings or fruitful or non-fruitful um, readings? And, and we certainly know there's the, the church has always used a great diversity of ways of reading the scriptures to bring out the truthfulness um, of those scriptures. But is that, is that um, an infinitely broad kind of... A uh, number of ways of fruitful reading, and if if, if there are non-fruitful ways of reading the scriptures, how do we make those kinds of decisions? So that's where I think hermeneutics often gets interesting. Yeah. It's thinking about um, who's reading, um, why, um, how do we adjudicate between competing readings? You're kind of leading my mind off in other directions, so I'm wondering. Um, what would you say about the general understanding of hermeneutics in our in our congregation among our members of our congregations? Do you think our church attending Christians have any understanding of the hermeneutical challenges that we deal with? It's it's so hard to speak generally about American Christianity because there are so many different um, cultures of Bible reading. You know, I think of the um, folks who say, well, I, ju I just read it literally, I, just the plain meaning of the text. And um, it's interesting you know, to see a student who kind of starts there being invited in to think, well, what, what all actually goes into that plain reading of the text? Mm -hmm. um, what do you actually, what are you bringing? What do you assume about this book? Is it a rule book? Is it a book of oracles from God? Is it a, uh, a bunch of stories that are kind of morally significant? Um, lessons like Aesop's fables. Um, so I'm not sure, do you, have a, do you have a suggestion of where we might, I mean, should we be sort of camping in the main line for a while? Um, no, I, that, that was a favorite thought that flew in the <laughs> Well, I'll just say, as, as, a, as a grateful uh, child of the United Methodist Church, um, I, I think that the ways I learned to read the Bible had a lot to do as a kid growing up in a congregation. Uh, with hearing it preached. Mm -hmm. So scripture was read from one side of the chancel and the sermon was preached from the other side. So there was a separation between the preacher and the text. Um, the minister in my formative years almost always preached the gospel text. So scripture was going to tell me about Jesus. Oftentimes, uh, those of you who know Wesleyans won't be surprised, there was a moral lesson for us. <laughs> um, so I think... Um, much of my early Christian youth um, imagined that being a good citizen, a good Boy Scout, a good Christian were all sort of one piece. Um, all of those things um, were an implicit hermeneutic. We should read these texts, we should hear these texts when we gather. We didn't read the Akron Beacon Journal when we gathered. Um, Jesus is really important and these texts tell us something about Jesus and Jesus matters for our lives. And so 
thinking about these stories together is going gonna, is gonna to help me uh, be a human being in relationship with God. Mm-hmm. All, of that's, all of that's at least part of what it takes. Mm-hmm. That we didn't have sermons on the Old Testament was also an implicit hermeneutic. This, this part mm-hmm. of scripture maybe is just not all that useful. Uh, or, as I started then as a teenager to read the Old Testament, I realized, wow, I, I don't know what's going on here. Like, I need someone to guide me. I don't, I don't know how to begin reading this book of laws. Um, and so maybe parts of the Bible are just not accessible except to some sort of an expert. But that's one way I would it illumines the point I was making with regard to um, the treatment of the engagement theologically with the mission over centuries of Western Christianity. The, the hermeneutic that we, we were using was basically a missional. Simply wasn't a part of the way we looked at We could read scripture and not see mission as central to what's going on there. And, that, and I think that's, that's very telling. It, it, it's possible to do that even though if you look begin to look, it, it is pervasive in the biblical record. But it's possible for a whole a so-called Christian culture to, to miss it. Uh, I, I always use as an example, and this I think, I've never seen this as a basic, an example of a hermeneutical handicap, but I think it is. Here at Princeton, for decades, Reformed theology was taught by, by Hodge, Charles Hodge, great, great scholar of the Reformed tradition. He wrote a three-volume <coughs> systematic theology, which for many, many years was the textbook students here had to use. I'm sure the students present are glad that we moved on from those days. <laughs> Hodge, in that three-volume systematic theology, never once mentions mission. <laughs> and yet he wrote towards the end of the, of the 18th century, 19th century, when Princeton was sending out hundreds of missionaries from Miller Chapel including Hodges' two sons. Which, that, 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 so I guess one side of it is the her, hermeneutical assumptions can be very powerful and unknown that we're not aware of. It makes me wonder how many other kinds of things are we not aware of because of the way we shape our tradition. And this, this gets to, to Lisa's point that you know, there's great value in reading with people who come at the text from very different perspectives because they're often asking questions. Yeah. Hey, where are the women in this text? Or what kind of agency do the women characters have? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What about the people we don't hear from? Mm-hmm. I've been teaching Paul's letter to Philemon about a, a slave, Onesimus. Mm-hmm. And Onesimus, we never learn anything about him, really, yeah. except how Paul thinks about him and how Philemon mm-hmm. thinks about him. Mm-hmm. What's he doing as he carries this letter back? So there are, I mean, it's a great gift to, to sort of be forced to confront the question, what is it like to read this text from a position of social marginality? What is it like? Yeah. Yeah. Your comments made me reflect about my own upbringing as a um, Pentecostal. Huh? And so um, I don't think I've ever heard uh, the people in my congregation articulated as missional, hmm. but I think that's kind of what they were about. Um, as far as for them, the reception of the Spirit was about um, the empowering of God, empowering them to go out and bear witness Sounds to the like world. Sounds like Acts. Yes. <laughs> yes, empowering them to go out and bear witness to the world. Um, and so I think for them, they, they never really articulated as missional hermeneutics. 
but that's what they were doing. Reading scripture in light of what has God called us to do. And I think that's why I gravitate toward missional because I feel like um, it's been a part of me from the, from the beginning. Well, since we're reformed, we could also say it was predestined. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, I'd love to stay with this for a minute if you could, to draw a, a kind of a, a contrast with the church that I grew up in. And I'd, I'd love for you then to reflect on what is it about your Pentecostal upbringing that sort of, that, that, that led you to see something in the scriptures that the tradition I grew up in didn't. So I grew up in North Dakota uh, in a very conservative Lutheran tradition. Um, and that was a pretty explicit hermeneutic. It was law and gospel. Uh, it was the Book of Concord. I mean, this is you—you you know—you read scripture through through Luther's lenses. Um, and so I grew up in a congregation where I was really formed to be anxious about works righteousness. That's really that was your task as a disciple: is to make sure that you didn't do anything that constituted a work. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's sort of the it's sort of the climax of Christendom. Um, uh, it was it was just about uh, church membership and and you worry a lot about the boundaries um, uh, and there wasn't I don't remember ever hearing a sermon on uh, mission or outreach or call to the world or anything like that so I didn't begin reading the New Testament um, with new eyes until I, I got up here um, uh, both as a student and then as a member of the faculty and track this conversation that that Daryl and Ross were having, and they were teaching classes. and um, So the way my, my tradition didn't allow me mm -hmm. to see that. Um, so what is it about your Pentecostal tradition? Mm -hmm. What are the theological um, bases, kind of starting points, that led to that greater openness? Yeah, so we trace our, yes? Is the microphone? Oh, is it not Was on? it not on? Oh. Not even for you, Shane. Oh. Hello. Oh, it is? Can okay. you hear me better now? Yes. Yeah, no? I think it just seemed to be moved up. It's on. Hello? Is that better? Is that better? Yeah. Okay. That's better? All right, thanks, Annie. We'll work on this. Hello. <laughs> um, so we trace our beginnings, if you will, of course, at, but in the early 20th century to Azusa Street. Mm -hmm. And um, where William Seymour led a Pentecostal revival. And people from all over the world came to Azusa Street um, to be, the terminology is baptized with the Spirit. That's the terminology they used. And out of that Pentecostal revival came many Pentecostal denominations. And then people who weren't Pentecostal came to this revival and went back to their own respective denominations. But one of the things that came out of that revival was this sense of, um, a reliving of Joel, right? That God has poured out the Spirit upon God's people and that God has brought a new revival. Um, and so out of that comes the sense of then we must be about what God is about in the world. And so God is empowering us to go out and bear witness to God's action here in creation. So I think that's growing up, so my dad is pastors. <laughs> so I think growing up, that was always a, a center of who we are. We're called to bear witness to what God is doing. We have the spirit, not just for ourselves, but to go out mm -hmm. and, and be a light. Yeah. So, so that, that um, 
that resonance with the spirit language, right? I mean, obviously that's core to Pentecostalism. Uh, that that really led um, um, your tradition to track with um, spirit language in the New Testament, and that, of course, that of course leads to right this this sentness into the world and. Um, Lutherans and other, I think, kind of uh, uh, mainline traditions like it, very suspicious about spirit language. Mm -hmm. It's enthusiasm. It's mm -hmm. sort of dangerous. You can't sort of contain it with doctrine or yeah. uh, kind of uh, church boundaries, and yeah. um, and then so you get you get worried about the spirit language in the New yeah. Testament, and then you don't see that the spirit right, is driving the church out into the world. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Does anybody want to? Uh, Make a comment or add a question or throw a theme at uh, our colleagues. Jenny? We've kind of hit on three interesting themes that I'd want to see conversation kind of melding together. And spirit, mission, and hermeneutics. So I think that there's something special going on in the interplay of those sort of themes. Could you speak on that? Well, I would say, going back to our comment that recently in the beginning, the fact that Acts uh, begins with the, the empowering work of the Holy Spirit immediately followed by the proclamation of the gospel in the tongue of every uh, cultural representative there, is carrying out this, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It, it's, it's, very, it's very clear that the only that the way the Spirit has to be talked about is in terms of the divine sending. That the Spirit is what makes that possible. And we ignore that at our own peril. just add to that um, I think that I think you're right to focus on this intersection Danny. Um, one of the things I think about when I think about spirit hermeneutics and mission together is that the mission is not about us right it's not about like we have to kind of engineer up the mission but um, allowing the spirit God's spirit to guide us into what God is already doing miss your day right mm -hmm. God is on a mission um, what is God up to and allowing the spirit to lead us and to show us those places where God is already at work and we're just partnering with God as Paul uses that language um, you know, partnering co-partner mm -hmm. co co-laboring with God mm -hmm. um, so I think like though those three intersections are important, but it's important that God through the Spirit is leading us because God through the Spirit is already at work. We just have to kind of be open to hearing what God is saying. So I, I think I would come at that question, Danny. Well, before I before I say what I was going to say, the um, the business of getting the divine and human agency right and talking yes. about this is so important. And yes. I hope we get a chance to talk about that a little bit tomorrow because it, yeah. um, you know, when you, um, and it's related to this, to, a related matter is sort of this, um, sometimes this wedge that gets driven between evangelism and social justice. Um, uh, and I think part of removing that wedge, which doesn't exist in scripture, yes. it, it exists in our interpretation. 
um, is getting the getting divine human agency right. Because if you resolve it um, too far one way or the other, you begin to lose the, the, the tension in which these things are held in Scripture. But your question makes me think, Danny, of this great, um, I think it was in the, I think it was in the GOCN series uh, at AARSBL the, by George Hunsberger, mm -hmm. thinking about kind of what does missional, missional hermeneutics mean, and so thinking about mission, spirit, hermeneutics. Uh, I mean, one way to think about the relationship, the intersection of those three things is to, is to, is to note how they are related in the texts of the scripture. So to notice that the missio dei is a, is a central theme um, in the New Testament and that the spirit is, is, is driving, right, is forming and driving uh, the church out into the world to participate in the mission of God. So sort of one way that we think about those three things relating, we see it as an important scriptural theme. Um, uh, but then Hunsberger says we also think about the way that these uh, texts are written to shape um, um, communities to do this work. So you're not just reading about it. You're being formed actually to do it. So they're the spirit, presumably, at work in uh, the reading of these texts to actually form um, uh, disciples um, in community to go out into the, uh, the world. And then you can begin to extend that further, as Hunsberger does, and, and notes that some have talked about um, the hermeneutic actually starts with a conviction in the community that the the scriptures are missional. And so you read everything in light of that lens. Um, and so you're not just reading the things that, that, that where you find the spirit and the mission of God and so forth, but you're, you're reading the entire canon of scripture um, as uh, missionally shaping a community to go out in the world. So um, I think that uh, tracing these three things, uh, hermeneutics, how we read, uh, the mission of God and the Spirit. I mean, when we get into talking about text tomorrow, these, I mean, we're just going to keep coming back to that again and again. But there are layers, and they're all interrelated. Thank you. Any other comments? One of the ways that uh, some of us have thought about this is to, to work on the questions we ask the text. It's not in a legitimate way of talking about doing her, doing her it's questioning the text. So, for instance, I like to get the students looking at the text. This may actually anticipate some of our discussion tomorrow, which won't hurt at all. Uh, how does this text change my way of seeing myself in the world I get? How does the text become a different kind of lens that, that corrects what might be very distorted vision? Uh, how does this text focus me upon God's future, what is yet to happen? Sort of the, the eschatological reality that God has yet to complete what God has begun. And I, so we, we echo with Paul that he who has begun a good work will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. And I find it to be a very useful exercise to compose such questions and see what they can unpack. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a, that maybe, maybe I'm just talking about another way of, of discussing hermeneutical methodology. But I, I, I find, I have five basic questions I use, but when I get to a class, students always come up with more. It's wonderful. Uh -huh. so, can, can, can we pursue that a little bit, Daryl? I, I wonder if, if, if uh, Ross, you and Daryl wouldn't say a little bit about your experience of, of teaching exegesis courses together mm -hmm. under the rubric of yeah. missional yeah. theology. Uh, Ross and Daryl are modest, so they won't tell you that they were really popular classes, and the students were eager to take them. And, and so how, I mean, how was that 
what kind of questions did people have? How did you see students kind of shaped in their theological imagination in, in those courses? I mean, it's a, uh, teaching with Daryl, in, in some ways, um, it, just the fact that we were teaching together and we organized our class in such a way that the students were participating as well. Um, this isn't exactly a question. It seems to me to be a, a sort of presupposition of a kind of lively missional hermeneutic is you can't do it by yourself in a study. It's, mm -hmm. it's God works through the text as the community is gathered. Jesus promises to be with us when we gather, promises that the Spirit is going to lead us into all truth, that there's something about reading together as a practice that's integral to this. Um, but we, uh, we picked what we thought were pretty obvious texts, like a pastoral letter from Paul the Apostle to a community um, seeking to help shape their life while Paul is in prison and absent from them. Um, but we just started asking kind of these, these basic questions. How, how is Paul going about trying to form a community of faith? How is he, um, what strategies do you see in this letter? What concerns, what ideas? And that led very naturally then to asking, well, how is this text attempting to form us? If we're continuing to read this, and we belong to the same one holy apostolic church that the Philippian believers belong to, well, how does this text now address us? And, um, and Daryl and George Hunsberger came up with a, a series of five questions. You, you, you should rattle them off, because I, I might embarrass myself and not be able to remember all five. Well, I, uh, um, but, but a rubric that, that just yeah. sort of got the conversation. Well, what is gospel? What is good news in this text? Uh -huh. What is the lens? How do you see the world differently because of the text? The future tense. What is healing or saving about the gospel? Mm -hmm. What is actually happening? Mm -hmm. and, and there's one more that I'm not getting. Where is their call for conversion? Well, that's right, uh, call for conversion. And, yeah. and, 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 and where is sentness a theme? The yeah. sending of the community. Not every text does all of them, but there's something of that in every text. Yeah. I remember, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say that shifts the conversation from saying, how many times can we find Paul use the word evangelism, right. or sending, or mission? Um, if, if actually everything is about creating a community where Jesus Christ is embodied in their love for one another and their interactions with their neighbors, then suddenly everything becomes potentially about it. Do you remember when we taught Philippians the first time and we had a kind of an evaluation day? Some amazing statements were made, and one young man who was Hispanic, he said, this is the first class I've had where I did not have to take the con con content through white culture into my culture. By working directly from the text, asking these questions, I can encounter the text directly with no cultural intermediaries. And I can't remember, it may well have been that class or it was another iteration of it. We, we got students to work together as well in reading groups, even in project groups. And you know, we were able to have a, a group, folks coming from Hispanic backgrounds, working in Hispanic contexts where yeah, they were able to, to really get drilled down into a specific context. Yeah. And then able to share with the class what they were learning, but yeah, not always having to make that translation move every moment. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Carlos? Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much to all the speakers. Um, just a very basic question about hermeneutics, really. 
it seems to me like there's this initial tension between the Bible and witnessing communities in the sense that the Bible is a fruit of the witnessing communities, and yet the Bible is used to shape witnessing communities. And um, my question is, to the experts, I'll ask the experts here, is there some sense of hermeneutical cessation limited to current canon? Um, especially when we read, you know, some of the early church historians like Eusebius and even Athanasius, some of these folks, they clearly had different parameters of what canon was and what was used as well as God's word to shape witnessing communities. So, just a bit of a basic question there. Well, how, long, how much time do you have? Does the question make sense? Oh, it makes, it makes okay. sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I think it's highly related to um, the spirits work in and through the community um, for the stewardship of the scriptures. Um, so I think most provocatively, um, to start, um, in the if you're a Protestant, I mean, there's no declaration anywhere that the canon is closed. So if you're just if you're talking about councils, I mean, the in the in the Western Church, the, the canon is, in the Roman Catholic Church, the Latin-speaking church, the, council, the, the canon gets closed, but not by one of the councils that we recognize, we Protestants, the first four ecumenical mm -hmm. councils. It's one of the later ones. Mm -hmm. um, so that even in the time of the Reformation, um, you know, Luther is, is talking about the, you know, the deuterocanonical status of the Apocrypha, and he's fussing about James. And, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's... Um, but I, I think one doesn't just jump from there to say that the, the, the canon of scripture is meaningless or it's open or, um, um, but the, it's, but th thinking that it's open or closed based on some decision of the church at some point in time, it's just, you can't find it for the Protestant tradition and it's not theologically very interesting. So for me, it's about starting with the, the, the witness to Jesus, uh, and the way that the, the way that the the spirit gives the church everything that it needs to sh to form it for its witness and work in the world, uh, and that that's at every level. That's in that's in the the writing of texts like gospels and epistles. That's in their being gathered together um, and read, uh, and uh, the the judgment of the church over time. Um, um, that the you know the apostolic witness is true in these texts. This, these are the texts that God is, has uh, um, chosen to equip us for what we need to do in the world. And I mean, over time, that you know that gets sharper and sharper, um, with the proviso that in different parts of the church there's still not complete agreement about this. Um, and so I think the theological category is the is God's provision to the church and the Spirit through these scriptures, so that every generation becomes a steward of these in a real way. Um, and it, it, to think in kind of a Hebrews kind of way of thinking, um, the, mm -hmm. the communion of the, the great cloud of witness, this yeah. is the communion of the saints. I mean, would, are, are we, you know, would we um, uh, decide that sort of the judgment of the church over 2,000 years in lots of times and in lots of places um, somehow left the church ill-equipped so that we would remove things or add things? 
Um, so theologically, that's not impossible. One has to imagine the bar is really high if you take that business of the communion of the saints seriously. So theologically, for me, that's the sense in which the canon is closed. It's the, the Spirit has, has given this provision to the church, and over time, um, um, this, this set of uh, documents, which are understood as providing a unified, coherent witness, is the ones... That, that we receive as a gift from God. The church hasn't been bereft. Um, uh, it's had what it's needed in these scriptures. And so that's the sense, I think, in which I consider the, the scriptures settled. Um, can, I, can I risk a kind of a thesis and see what you do with it? It relates to this question. Of course. Uh, if I make the claim that the purpose of the apostolic mission, I made this statement, was not simply saving souls, the purpose was the drawing together of witnessing communities to continue the apostolic mission. So that the communities were equipped to, to continue doing what had been done in their midst when the missionaries came, for instance, to Philippi and brought the gospel to them. So my contention is that the early Testament, the early Christian communities understood that they existed to continue the mission. That's why there are virtually no uh, imperatives to evangelize. Because if you were a community of Christ, that's what you did. That's what you were for. Uh, and therefore, the written testimonies of the Apostolic Mission continue the formation that began in the direct encounter between the, the Apostolic Missionaries and the communities. Uh, and then it's the church, the church recognizes that. I'm getting to the canonic question. The church recognizes in these texts, these are instruments of God's spirit for our formation, for witness. And I, I think that that's why the, the, the New Testament scriptures that do get recognized, get recognized, it's because they work as missional formation. Whereas, you know, some of the sub-apostolic uh, literature doesn't. It does not get that recognition. Is that too bold, a set of claims? <laughs> That's okay. Go ahead. No, no. I, I was going to come in maybe just a, sorry, to a slightly different angle. So um, we do a lot of that. Yeah, we do. Um, yeah. What? What was that different angle? Um, well, I, th I actually think this is a good background to the question of what we read when we gather together, but. Um, the way you put it, Daryl, that, that, that the purpose isn't to save souls, but I, I want to say yes and no. Right? I mean, in the sense that it seems to me that what, what Jesus invites us to is friendship with God. Mm -hmm. That, that to, be, to be restored, reconciled to God, to be fully human, to be image of God in the way that we were made to be, is to, is to have this deep fellowship and friendship with God. And that that's not, that's not rightly understood as leading them to a kind of private, quietistic existence. But that friendship with God is to be born into a new community. It's to be caught up in God's reconciling work in the world. Um, Jesus says in, in, in uh, John 12, the one, the one who loves me will follow me, and where I am, my 
disciple will be also. Where is God? God is... Jesus left the 99 and is seeking the one. You know, God is the, the, the one um, who's going out ahead of us. And so that there's not a choice between do I want to have fellowship with God or do I want to be in mission? It's actually, no, if I want to be in fellowship with God, then I'm going to be passionate for those that God is calling into relationship with God's self. And it seems to me that the, that the scriptures that are read in the community um, are those that tell this big story, to, to use um, uh, Carlos's phrase from the sermon, the, the grand narrative. Um, this, God hasn't just acted through a set of ideas and propositions. God called Abraham, and God called Israel, and through uh, Israel's prophets and through the coming of Israel's Messiah has now opened up um, a door for the Gentiles to be brought into God's people. And, and that the New Testament writings that begin to be read along with the scriptures of Israel are the ones that tell the story of Jesus or that help the community inhabit that story. Um, one of the books on the reading list is Michael Gorman's Becoming the Gospel. Um, these, are, these are the books that invite us into life with God. And so, um, you know, in the, in the in the sorting out of certain books that are in, books that are out, eventually it's, it's pretty hard for me right now at least to understand why Jude belongs in and, and First Clement belongs out, but, but the core is really clear. It's the law and the prophets, the gospels and the, and the apostolic witness. And um, I, I also agree with, with Shane that at, at this point, you know, we're, we don't get to make this stuff up. We've received the apostolic witness, not just in text, but embodied in people who brought us to faith, through whom God's worked to show us Christianity. And um, part of that inheritance is continuing to to read these texts together. They're never just read together, though. I, I, I This is something I'm really grateful to my church formation, where we, we gather around the table and we share bread and wine. Um, we follow a calendar that doesn't make any sense with the U.S. holidays. We, we start our year at Advent, and we, we the climax of our, of our celebration is the resurrection of Jesus. Um, that's the context in which these things are read. So that in this, this um, worship shapes reading and worship shapes theology in a very, very significant way. And worship shapes proclamation, right? When, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, First Corinthians, and he's telling them about how they're celebrating the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And he says, when you gather together, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. So it's not just like oral proclamation. When you come together as this community, remembering, eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ, you are actually proclaiming something. So this mission, worship and mission and when it doesn't, then Paul can say, whatever you're doing, it's not the Lord's suffering. Yes. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> because you're despising the poor and you're exactly. yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it strikes me that, that the story you're telling now is one where you trust that God's spirit is at work. And you don't have to be in control of it. And you're you're willing to step back yeah. in a in a beautiful way and be patient and say, What's God gonna do with these folks in my choir singing about Jesus taking their sins away. Like, it's not up to you to do all the work of the text. 
you're, you're not doing all the work of the Holy Spirit. You're able to, it sounds like you have a, a sense of confidence in the good news that it lets you let people sit with it and hear it. And it's, it's really beautiful. Um, and it sure seems to me that that is a really high view of God's agency in bringing people to faith. That you can facilitate, you can invite, you can create an atmosphere, but sometimes you just have to be quiet and wait until that guy work. I want to, uh, this is a slight change in the room, but it goes back to things we have been talking about. I pose a little uh, kind of challenge. What if, in some cave above the Dead Sea, we were to find uh, in a jar there a scroll that was clearly an epistle of Paul? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was not written by someone else. It was written by Paul. It was addressed to a particular community. Uh, and there was no and, and there was no question that it, it was Third Corinthians. <laughs> Would that discovery be incorporated in the canon? It's one of the missing Corinthian letters. How would you deal with that? I don't know if anybody else in the room has read this novel um, from, gosh, 1960s by Walter Miller, A Canticle for Leibowitz? A Canticle for? A Canticle for Leibowitz. Okay. No? It's a, a, a novel that imagines the aftermath of global thermonuclear war. Um, and, uh, and Christianity is kept alive by monks in the desert. Um, but one of their saints uh, at the Abbey of St. Leibowitz uh, was a, an engineer who was involved in the nuclear program who, after the radium rain, becomes a Christian. A anyway, one of the, the, uh, the um, treasured um, texts from this St. Leibowitz, they can't quite understand, um, is, a, is a little text that reads... Um, pastrami, loaf of bread, eggs. It's his grocery list. But they, you know, this is a thousand years later, they know what it is. It's venerated um, in a kind of funny way. But the liturgical life of this community is the same liturgical life of the Catholic Church through the millennia. So it's valuable, but it's not... It's not at the heart of the church's life. And I, I guess I kind of imagine that if we got Paul's grocery list or Paul's missing letter, that it would be valuable in shedding all kinds of light on the text that we have. Uh, I suppose it could be adopted sort of universally by, by the Christian communion around the world and begin to be read in worship. But I don't think the effects would be known for a long time. That's what I, would, I would say, well, give yourself 300 years. Right. See how the text works in the community. If, if it in fact equips the saints for the work of service or to, to lead our lives worthy of our calling, then I can see the church, because the canon is enclosed, 
thanking God for this latter day gift. And it's not more. Uh, well, uh, just a that was that was kind of a detour, but we we are. Do you agree that there is, or can you give examples or comment on the development of a missional hermeneutics as an actual discipline? What do you, what, you, you've passed on a, uh, some material from Borman. I think this is a wonderful example. And he's, he's quite straightforward in the book. He said he's learned missional hermeneutics in the gospel culture discussions, and, and this is one of the first results of that. But do you, do you see uh, something happening here uh, can you imagine a New Testament intro course to new, uh, including missional hermeneutics as a part of the tools one needs to work with the New Testament? Pregnant pause. Just to ask you, Lisa, has this become part of your hermeneutics course? And if my so, intro, in what way? My yeah. intro, where we talk about the different hermeneutics. Okay. Um, yes. Um, let, me, let me back up for a second. So, when I came to PTS, I did not know about missional hermeneutics oh, wow. until I um, TA'd a class with Daryl and Ross. Um, and so, it wasn't something that I learned at seminary um, until I came here. I didn't learn it when I was at Duke. Um, and so through Daryl, I got to connect with other people at other institutions through GSEN who are engaging in missional hermeneutics. Um, there's a very robust discussion, I think a very honest discussion about what missional hermeneutics is in the academy broadly. But I do think Unfortunately, there is some resistance mm -hmm. to it. And so, um, so I think you will see some scholars who are very much gravitating toward it, and they do believe that this is something we should talk about and have in seminaries, but then you will have other scholars who think, well, we're not quite sure that this is a, I don't know if legitimate is the right word to use, a legitimate way to interpret text. So um, I think it's a mix. Right. Mixed reception. Mixed reception. I don't know if you all have experienced that as well. Well, maybe your experience is a little bit different. This gathering at the SPL meeting that we're talking about, this is a Society of Biblical Literature, has regional meetings, but a big annual meeting at, what, 8,000 some yeah. people who teach Bible in secular universities, yeah. private divinity schools, seminaries. Bible colleges. It's a very wide group, so nobody's going to agree on everything. Yeah. There's, you can kind of do your niche thing. Um, the group that's gathered around this mm -hmm. tends to be folks who are really interested in interpreting scripture within the life and mission of the church. Yeah. And and so I I'm, I did, I don't think the academy is the place where the church learns how to read the Bible anyway. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I think it's great that there's that space. A lot of us go to this meeting, we can meet each other, but I don't look for it to become mm -hmm. an academic movement. Yeah. I actually think that, that the place where it really missional interpretation happens is the congregation. Mm -hmm. And so even, I think it, I'm yeah. passionate about this being part of training 
teachers, pastors for the church. I think yeah. it belongs in the seminary curriculum. But um, I'm not doing it in the classroom in the way that when I teach a Sunday school class in my local church or when I preach on a, on a Sunday morning. That's, I, I tend to think Christian theology is best done from the pulpit and, and has been throughout the church's history, that all the reflection that happens in the study has to serve that and be tested by it. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not at all discouraged, actually, that it's not the new wave of New Testament study in, in the academic field. I, I think that folks... From, yeah, because that means at some point it'll be the old way, right? <laughs> yeah. So, right. so yeah, I, I feel like I really have to come clean with you all and just um, um, fess up to being the, the least methodologically sophisticated uh, of the group here. Uh, and I'll tell you something that I've said to all all three of these, especially to Daryl. Um, uh, I um, I'm I'm so engaged in the missional hermeneutics conversation, um, not because I'm interested in hermeneutics and kind of the science of interpretation. Um, I've said to Daryl many times, I just consider this New Testament theology. Uh, so, so for me, this is, this is where, this is the reading the New Testament recommends um, at every turn. Uh, it's core theologically to the New Testament that this community has been called into being uh, by Christ to participate in God's mission in the world in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, and so this this defines for us what the church is. Um, uh, it's that's that's I mean it's it's theology, sociology, ecclesiology. All um, it's just it's a winsome reading in the New Testament. Um, uh, and so that's why this is so engaging to me, and, and why I agree with Ross. Um, academic guilds are important. Um, you don't want to say they're they're not important, um, but it's certainly not where the interesting work is going to be done. I'm much more interested. Um, in congregations um, uh, being shaped by this good theology. Um, and I, in my own experience, have found, to go back to your question earlier about how do you do this, it's, um, it's, it's many things rather than one thing, but they're all intentional. Um, uh, and you have, to, you have to get down to basics, and you have, you have to teach people that the scriptures say this. Um, so I like to, I've done this uh, several times, uh, 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 in church Sunday school classes, I've done some leadership retreats for congregations, um, and to take 2 Corinthians 5, and uh, the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and salt and light, and, um, and you just teach people that the, uh, the New Testament witness is that this is what the church is, and you are here to be formed for this faithful witness and action out in the world in participation with God's mission. That's what it is. The church isn't anything, of anything else but that. Uh, but in order, and then people get worried, well, this is well, this is just a, so the church is a social service agency or something. You say, no, no, no. That, I mean, how people are shaped for that faithful witness and work in the world is through preaching and the sacraments and fellowship and pastoral care, all the things that we know from the, the Christian community. Um, uh, but it's not an end in itself. All of the all of the joy of that community is a fruit. It's a corollary. Um, the point is what God is up to in the world and how we've been called to participate in that. So uh, I actually get a little nervous calling you, thinking about it as a hermeneutic, because for me it transcends that. Mm. This is interesting, Daryl. You you have said in, in my hearing many times that missional theology, that, that the word missional is a scaffolding term. 
Yes. Could you explain what you mean by that? Well, I, I got it from a student. We were talking about these themes here. And, and a student raised his head. He said, I think that this word missional is a scaffolding term. When we say church, it, not, it ought not to be possible to say church and not mean mission. But because of this long, complex, problematic history, we can say church and not mean mission. Yeah. And so until that's corrected, until you can't imagine ecclesia, church, other than an instrument of the mission of God, we use the term. And I think that, that there are several of those terms. Yeah. But it, but it's not a it's not a good in itself. Once no. it, it's there, because something's got to be repaired. Yeah, I mean, I, I've often said that. I've heard people say we're doing missional, and I say that's not even English. That's <laughs> <laughs> theology. It, it, it has become, in many ways, a highly problematic cliche. Here at Princeton, I mean, my chair was chair of missional, and I give it on theology. So for 20 years, it was hallowed with that status, but probably will not continue. But that's okay because that's okay. the church and good theology and right. good pastoral practice continues with right. or without the term. I do think that there there is, and this is sort of scholarly plus, there's interesting work to be done once we kind of get loosened up from this silence of mission in our history and in, the, in our methodology to begin to discover resources for missional interpretation of scripture that we didn't know were there. For instance, I, I've always said I don't think a, certain, a person should be allowed to graduate from seminary not having read Wright's Kingdom of God, which of course 99% of our graduates have never heard of the book, but that's fundamental missional formation. Uh, my, my esteemed New Testament professor, Leonard Goble, wrote a two-volume uh, New Testament theology. The first volume is the theology of the, of the, the discipleship. The second volume is the discipleship theology of apostolate. And he has this, I think, profoundly biblical understanding that the, the discipleship formation in the Gospels is equipping for apostolate and not for some office that is in and itself. Well, that's a rich interpretation. That opens up all kinds of understandings that I think are really not. My man that I greatly esteem, uh, Stuhlmacher, in, has written on New Testament theology, that every stratum of New Testament literature is permeated by the central emphasis on reconciliation. When you begin probing that, it becomes absolutely fascinating. So I think there's, there's that work that would be useful. It, it's out there. It's, it, I mean, you can find these things in the, in the Swiss Reformation. The church, they, they make the, the first statement that Calvin takes up. The church is the creation of the word of God, period. There's a great deal of missional wisdom in, in unpacking that. So in, in thinking about those resources, Daryl, um, we need to we need to lean on um, the sort of the, those who went before us and kind of right. did this good theology and do the good theology in our context. Uh, it strikes me that Stuhlmacher and Gottfeld, I mean, they're thinking about reconciliation in the context of a recent memory of Europe. Right. torn apart, um, right, in East and West Germany and all the other, the, the horrors of two world wars. Um, uh, and so people who think about reconciliation in that kind of context, I mean, that's worth drawing on. Um, our challenge is different. I mean, our country is being torn apart um, uh, by, along racial lines, along racial issues, socioeconomic issues. I mean, so we now need to do the work of missional theology in that context and wed it to those that have gone before and this kind of communion of the saints kind of idea.
So I find this definition that Gorman gives about missional hermeneutics, um, how to read scripture through the lens of the Missio Dei, I find this very helpful. He says, a missional hermeneutic is grounded in the theological principle of the Missio Dei, or mission of God. This term summarizes the conviction that the scriptures of both testaments bear witness to a God who as creator and redeemer of the world is already on a mission. Indeed, God is by nature a missional God who is seeking not just to save souls to take to heaven someday, but to restore and save the created order. Individuals, communities, nations, the environment, the world, the cosmos. This God calls the people of God assembled in the name of Christ, who was the incarnation of the divine mission, to participate in this missio day, to discern what God is up to in the world, and to join in. So I think when, we, when we're teaching and preaching, if we teach and preach through this lens, describing who God is, God as creator and redeemer of the world, um, that God is already on a mission, and that Part of the mission is to save individuals, but it's much more cosmic, right? It's about saving nations and restoring the environment, the world. Um, and then that God calls us, people who are gathered in the name of Christ, to um, discern what God is up to and to join into that. And then at the bottom of the page, I've given you some questions that Gorman kind of outlines. And I think um, Daryl kind of hit at some of these. Um, some of the questions to ask when you're reading a biblical text, like some of the questions to ask when you're reading a text, how to, what questions to ask when you want to read it through the lens of missing a day. So I won't read all of these here because I'll just point out a couple. Um, what does this text reveal about humanity and the world? What does this text say about the nature and mission of God's people in the world? About the church as an agent of divine mission? How does this text relate to this larger scriptural witness in both testaments? How does this text call us to participate in God's mission? Um, another important question I'd like here is, what powers that could deceive, seduce, and harm the world or the church does this text unveil and challenge and call us to unveil and challenge? Um, and Daryl mentioned this earlier, how does this text call us to imagine and envision the and what does this text call us to unlearn and then learn afresh? So I think these are some questions that when we're reading the text, that we can bring these questions with us as we're reading the text and kind of help us to think about the implications of this text through a missional hermeneutics lens. Does that help? Does that help? I, I think I just did to reinforce something that, that Lisa said too, that this is a you can certainly do, you can preach this way, and and preaching is a is a tremendously important way of communicating an attitude toward the Bible, a, a, the the grand story. But a lot of this is really learned as we sit together and ask, yeah. because yeah. one of us doesn't by ourselves know everything we need to unlearn, and we need to see the imagination of others unlocked. So this is actually maybe now to throw a question back to, to some of you all who are leading congregations, but where else does that happen? If not Sunday morning, what kinds of opportunities can you create, can we create 
for people who are, who are doing this. Yeah. And I guess some of this we'll hear tomorrow morning from our, from our partner. <laughs> It becomes, a, it becomes a much more organizing uh, question, I think, for leading a church as well. How do how do we teach this way of reading scripture? That's not just going to happen on Sunday. Well, this is the sense of the of the sort of the axiomatic statement I like to work with that Carlos cited. When we're dealing with a particular text, we ask this question: How did this text continue the formation of a witnessing community then, and how does it do that now? make it clear that it, there is a then, and there is a need for the scholarship, the knowledge that helps us understand what does it mean that, that Paul writes to the Corinthians, you are Christ's letter to the world. And how is that to be interpreted in that context? In order then to say how it does this to us, it addresses us. I think that's the caution against applications or hearings of the text that are illegitimate. By, by hearing and learning how did it originally work, and then ask, how does it work now? I think we build an engagement with the dynamic work of God moving from the apostolic period to our period. I always like to say, when you read the list of the disciples in, in Mark 3, your congregation needs to understand that they're to put their names at the bottom of the list. They're, they're joining these apostles that Jesus is educating in, in, the, in, the, in Mark's gospel.